Right, welcome back. Um, part three, history. Uh, this is our last attempt to try and cover an absurd amount of time in a very short hour together. Uh, today we're going to start at the year 1000 and try and go to more or less the present, but let's say 2000, just for tidiness. So, um, in this period, a couple things just to say from the get-go is there's more, there's not more history, more things didn't happen, but there's more recorded history in this period than in the previous periods we looked at because we have more records, more archives, more sense of memory, and it's not that far away from our own time. So there's impossibly no way we could ever possibly get close to covering even a fraction of all the things that happened that are related to Jews from 1,000 to 2,000. Instead, what we're going to try and do is do a generic overview of some of the things that are important and why. One thing that's really important just to start with is that at this point in history, up until now, when we've talked about Jewish communities, they've largely been in either one or two places. Either it was the land of Israel, for most of what we did in the last couple of weeks, or it was the land of Israel and Babylon, as we looked at the Talmud and the development of the rabbis. Now, we have Jews literally all sorts of places, right? So from this time on, after the end of the Talmudic period, after the Muslim conquest in the 7th century, Jews are living basically anywhere you can imagine, and the experience of their Jewish life is very different in each of those places. Broadly, we divide those Jewish communities into two categories. Category one being the Jews who live in Muslim-dominated environments, which we call Sephardi. Uh, that's because the word for Spain is Farad in Hebrew, and so originally it referred predominantly to Jews from Spain, but later and since has referred more or less to Jews who have lived in what we might call the kind of Muslim sphere of domination. The opposite being the Jews who lived in Christian Domination are Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi. <laughs> right, and again, that's because in Hebrew the word for Germany is Ashkenaz. So Germany became the kind of symbol of that. There are large kind of differences in how these two Jewish communities approached halacha, how their life was relative to the non Jews who they lived amongst. There's lots of ways in which they're very distinct, but also they're artificial categories themselves. Jews living in Yemen were very different from Jews living in Portugal, were very different from Jews living in Tangiers, just as Jews living in Germany were quite different from Jews living in England, as they were from Jews living in Georgia. Where you draw the lines in terms of what's Ashkenazi and what's Sephardi, it's kind of irrelevant. They're broad, generic categories, and when we talk about the patterns, that's what we mean, not anything that's consistent among all the communities. Sorry. So Mizrahi is, is a word that means Eastern, um, and it's actually kind of a pejorative term. It's, it's based on British empirical, imperial attempts to go to the land of Israel and categorize some Jews as Eastern Jews. So it's not a, it's not a term you'll hear me use. Um, there are some Jews who embrace the term of Mizrahi, uh, but it's not one that I will use, partially because it's got that very heavy history of British colonial thinking about good and bad Jews and good and bad races. It wasn't ever a self-definition that Jews have used for themselves. Obviously, Sfaradi is, Sfarad, as in Spain, is a long way from Yemen, but in terms of how the approach to Judaism is formulated and what authorities are relied on to make halakhic decisions, the community in Yemen is much closer to the historical legacy of Spain than it is to Germany. But it's a completely an overgeneralization. In reality, there's not just two Jewish ethnicities and traditions. There's hundreds, if not thousands, even sometimes in the same city. I have two prayer books from the city of Casablanca, right, in Morocco. One of them is from the Spanish-speaking part. One of them is from the French-speaking part, and they're completely different. It's like which side of the road you live on. So it gets very granular sometimes we talk about Jewish identity. And as the medieval into modern period kind of emerges, that becomes a big factor of Jewishness, is the relationship to the identity of being a Jew who lives in somewhere. Because where these people don't live, that we're going to be talking about today, until here, is the land of Israel, right, broadly. Um, that's partially because one of the first things that happens is that in 1099, the Crusaders succeed in taking Jerusalem, uh, and as a result, Jerusalem becomes a, a pawn in many, many wars back and forth, and many crusades of Europeans who are going to the land of Israel to try and conquer it. The Crusaders are a universal bad for Jews. Any Jews that they find along their way, whether they're going from France or England or the Holy Roman Empire on their way to land of Israel, end up just being target practice 
and even the Jews who lived in the land of Israel at the time were largely slaughtered because they supported the Muslims who were already there in resisting the European Christian crusaders. Um, just to put a couple things in context, we're going to kind of talk about random little events. That's the best way to do this, kind of zoom in on one moment to try and get a sense of what's going on. So the year 1000, good place to start. The year 1000 in Germany, in particular in a place where there developed to be a Jewish community in three cities, Mainz, Speyer, and Worms, right, which are all on the Rhine River. Three cities became known as having a high Jewish population around the turn of the millennium. All of the Jews who had come there had come there from Italy, actually, originally, and had moved to kind of open commerce and trade in these three cities in Germany. This is the beginning of the Ashkenazi community. Before 1000, there is not a distinct Ashkenazi community. If there are Jews living in Europe, they don't really have an identity. We don't have much records of them. It's something that comes a lot later and joins in what's already been an emerging process of Jewish development. 1000, there's a rabbi named Gershom who lives in these three cities who convenes an assembly, basically, what in Christian terms is called a synod, and he bases it on Christian approaches to religious decision-making in order to pass three new laws. He's not happy with three things about Jewish law and wants to introduce three new laws. Number one is a husband can no longer divorce his wife without her consent, so the wife needs to agree to be divorced. That wasn't the law previously, which might seem a bit strange now, but that's the result of the what we call the Takanot Rabbeinu Gershom, the laws of Rabbeinu Gershom. That's number one. Number two, related to the fact that you, um, one man cannot marry several wives. Uh, so Takanot Rabbeinu Gershom in Ashkenazi countries put a kibosh on polygyny, polygyny specifically one man, many wives. And the third is that you can't open other people's mail which is sensible enough. So this, this moment, Rabbeinu Gershom having this kind of synod of all of these rabbis is really remarkable because it shows the beginning of an Ashkenazi identity, right? There was enough things that were different about the Jewish community in these three cities in Germany that they felt the need to convene a council and have a meeting and agree on particular things that are unique to them and not shared among other Jewish communities. So the Jews who were living in the Muslim world this time do not accept the three rules of Rabbeinu Gershom, and as a result still have the same laws in the books, have not accepted the three rules about reading the post, divorcing uh, unilaterally, and having many wives. So that's less important the details. More important is that you see the beginning and the emergence of a distinct Ashkenazi community with a distinct identity. Part of that Ashkenazi community are certain personalities who start to give some... <laughs> identity to that community through the work that they're doing. One of them is quite important is a guy named Rashi. Right? Rashi, like all names of rabbis, is an acronym for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki, which was his name. He was a vintner by trade. He made wine. He talks a lot about wine. He really seemed to enjoy wine. And many of his commentaries kind of go off on a tangent about the merits of wine. He lived in France in a town called Troyes. Anyone been to Troyes? It's a really cute little town. Uh, and he was one of the first people, arguably the first person, to actually look at the Torah and go through it and write a line-by-line, word-by-word commentary, right? which is something that is unprecedented. He, as a result, is the first what we call parshan, or Torah commentator, and he really is one of the first people to create the genre of Jewish literature, which we call parshanut. So nowadays, most people, when they learn Torah, one of the things that they'll do is look at what Rashi has to say. Right? And so he's become hugely influential, even a thousand years later, because he's still kind of the go-to commentator on the Torah. He's often wrong. Right? He often imports his own views in different midrashim. But it, he created a whole new genre of Jewish literature, which deeply affected the development of Judaism. Because regular Jewish people, who may not have understood biblical Hebrew very well, were relying on Rashi's commentary to help them understand. A lot of Rashi's commentary, he'll say, oh, this word... It's actually this, and he gives the medieval French equivalent of what that word is, so that his audience, which is regular Jews, who live in France, who don't really know Hebrew, can understand what it is that the Torah is teaching. He was incredibly prolific, I attribute it to the wine, and in addition to writing a full commentary on every verse of the Torah, he also write a, wrote a full commentary on the entire Talmud, all 63 tractates. And so Rashi single-handedly becomes a hugely influential person in Jewish history just because he's very, very productive. Anthony Trollope wrote like 800 novels, right? And as a result, 
He believed that he would be hugely influential in literature. Mostly he's influential for the fact that he wrote about 800 novels, and they're all about 800 pages long. Rashi was slightly more successful, I think, than Trollope, in that he actually managed to get himself to be the first line of inquiry about both the Torah and the Talmud. So, also when you learn a page of Talmud, Rashi is always printed. His commentary is always printed in there. And similarly, he's trying to help regular people understand it a bit better. He created, through his family and through his descendants, a whole school based on this approach to the text as something that requires interpretation and commentary and commentary on the commentary. There are hundreds of super commentaries on Rashi, meaning it's a commentary about the commentary, about the Torah. And believe it or not, there are super, super commentaries, which explain the super commentaries about the commentary of Rashi about the Torah. This becomes, over time, a school of thinkers, which we call now the Tosafists, because they wrote a series of commentaries called the Tosafot, or editions. Their approach to Judaism is completely new and completely unprecedented. It is different than the approach to Judaism in the Sephardi world. The Sephardi world, influenced by Muslim thinking and by the Islamic philosophy that was in vogue at the time, looks at the text, tries to understand what it means, uses grammar very heavily and compares to Arabic, and understands the text for its simple meaning as it appears to them. They do not write commentaries largely. They start to. Rashi and his descendants and his children and his family and the Tosafists that follow him really introduce a whole new way of interpreting texts. But the text itself is not irrelevant, but it actually, the text itself doesn't stand without the commentary. The commentary is necessary to understand the text. It's beautiful because it makes it accessible, but it's also problematic because it means the text becomes something different than what it is itself. Many people who have learned Chumash with Rashi, which is what you will learn if you grow up in a Frum environment, think things are in the Torah that are not in the Torah. Because Rashi's commentary includes this midrash, and he says this, and he gets this wrong. He, he's, as a result, affecting the way in which people look at the Torah. It's a lens that people look at the Torah through. And still, to this day, there are thousands of children in Golders Green who spend their, most of their time learning Chumash with Rashi, and that is the way they understand the Torah. And as a result, look at the Torah differently than someone who might just learn the Torah as it is without a commentary. So commentary is a mixed bag, right? We have one of them here. So commentary is a mixed bag. It makes things accessible. It also distances people from the real meaning of the text itself and creates a barrier, an intermediary, between them and the text. Rashi wasn't the only significant figure to live during this time. And an interesting contrast is someone who lives slightly later. Rashi dies in 1115, 1105, excuse me, 1105, and born... 30 years later is a guy named Moshe ibn Maimon, or Moshe ben Maimon, or Maimonides, or Musa ibn Musa, or all sorts of other names that he gets, right? And Maimonides, which is what we'll call him, is born in 1135. He's born in Cordoba, in southern Spain. Who knows the geography of Spain? It's going to become important. Yeah? Roughly? Okay, so Spain looks like this. My maps are really what I'm famous for. That's Spain, that's Portugal, okay? And, <laughs> exactly right. And uh, at this time, Right? The, the Muslim armies during the Islamic conquest have succeeded in invading Spain from North Africa, this is Morocco, and they came across and they invaded Spain, and they got to a certain point, let's say here. And so everything above this line is Christian, and everything below this line is Muslim. Apologies for that horrible drawing. And the result of the years between, let's say, roughly 1200 and 1500, more or less, is there's a continual war going on. Hello. Farewell up and down, back and forth, across the geography of Spain, where sometimes the line goes up and the Muslims gain some territory, sometimes the line goes down and the Christians gain some territory, and ultimately by the end of this period, which we get to shortly, the Christians succeed in taking all of Spain back. In their mind, they say back. They call it the Reconquista, meaning that it is the reconquering of Spain and forcing the Muslims out. What's really important about this is not the dynamics of the Reconquista, but the fact that the biggest Jewish population in the world lives in Spain, somewhere between 500 and 800,000 Jews, which is not a huge amount, but they're incredibly influential, and they're also the most developed Jewish community, the most literate Jewish community, and most of the Jewish texts that are emerging during this time from 1200 to 1500 come from Spain. And, as a result, Jews who live all throughout this country are getting caught in the crossfire between Christians and Muslims. Most of the story of medieval Judaism is Jews getting caught in the crossfire between Christians and Muslims. So, Maimonides is born in Cordoba, down here. 
But shortly after he's born, there's an invasion of new Muslim armies from North Africa who are more extremists, who follow what today we would call a Salafi approach to Islam, and they invade Spain to try and affect and change the way in which Spain's Islam is practiced. As a result, they persecute Jews, because they don't quite accept the basis that's established in the Quran, that Jews as people of the book can live in peace so long as they pay what's called the jizya, which is a tax, a poll tax. But these new groups called the Amohads did not agree to this. As a result, Maimonides, as a boy, flees with his family. He goes from Spain all the way across the coast of North Africa, down over here to what is Egypt, and which is ruled by a different Muslim state called the Fatimid Caliphate. The Fatimid Caliphate has a very different approach to Islam, a little bit more relaxed, much more inclusive, and absolutely accepts the idea of the people of the book and their status. So Maimonides becomes a refugee and moves to what is today old Cairo, what was then called Cairo, today is called Fustat, and as he grows up he becomes a doctor, he ends up becoming the physician to the leader of the Fatimid Empire, uh, who is known as Salah ad-Din, Saladin, who of course is the figure who is leading the crusade and the anti-crusade against the Christian armies. So Maimonides is the personal physician of Salah ad-Din and his harem and all of his family and all the people who work in the court. As a result, he's very busy. But in his busy life, he also makes time to do two important things. And we're talking about books in particular, because it's an easy way to remember that. One of them that he writes is called uh, the More Nevuchim. We'll talk about that in a minute. More Nevuchim, which means the uh, guide for the perplexed is how it's usually translated to English. It's actually not called the More Nevuchim. It's written in Arabic, so it has a different title, which I think is the La'at Al-Irin. Right? Which is the guide for the perplexed, the helpful guide for those who are confused. The other book he writes is called the Mishneh Torah, which is the more important one for our purposes. The Mishneh Torah is the first codification of Jewish law. The result, if you remember last time, we talked about the development of the Mishnah and the Talmud and all of the fact in which the Talmud is really just court reports of rabbis having arguments in an academy somewhere. Someone wrote it down, someone told someone else. After the end of the Talmudic period, people wrote letters to those academies to say, hey, what's the deal with this? How do I do this thing on Shabbat? And they wrote letters back, and those letters were collected and syndicated and published and sent around to different places. But ultimately, the situation we find ourselves in, from 1,000 to 1,200 in the period in which we're in, is that the people, the regular average Jewish person who uh, isn't that literate and hasn't spent time in the academies and maybe doesn't know Hebrew that well, can't actually figure out for themselves what the law is. Right? If you're a regular average Jew and you just want to know, actually, how do I keep Shabbat? Or actually, how am I supposed to do Pesach? What do I do? How do I do Kiddush? When do I do it? There's not really a book you can pick up and consult in order to understand what the law simply is. Maimonides comes to fix that problem in what he's called the Mishneh Torah. Mishneh Torah literally means second Torah. And that is what he means by Mishneh Torah. Because what he does... In his free time, which is about six hours a day, he tells us, which he doesn't seem to sleep. He says that he works for six hours writing this book. He spends six hours consulting with physical issues in the harem and being a doctor. He spends six hours teaching Torah to children, and he spends six hours traveling. That's 24 hours. So, you know, I don't know. Evidently, he never slept. But he spends his free time writing the Mishneh Torah. And what he does is he comes through the entirety of the Talmud, the entire thing, all of its mess, the entirety of the Mishnah, all of the She'elot Uchuvot, all the letters, the questions and answers that he could find, and some of the works that he found most influential from people who were mostly from Spain, but he manages to include some other sources from some rabbis in Europe as well, and he compiles and tries to reduce all of this giant mess of Jewish thinking into one clear, concise law book. And that's what the Mishneh Torah is. Several things are distinct about this. One is, it does not have sources. So the Mishneh Torah says, on Shabbat, you do this. That's it. It doesn't tell you, oh, if you want to find out more, look in the Talmud on this page. It also does not include alternate opinions. So whereas most Jewish books say, on Shabbat, some say you do this, and some say you do that, and some say maybe this, and some say this. Maimonides didn't want that. He wanted to be a clear, concise, and precise explanation of Jewish law to anyone who wanted to learn it, which it absolutely is. It's an incredible achievement in that sense. However, many people got very angry about it because what it does is it reduces the creative, flexible, adaptable, dynamic, fluid aspect of Jewish law into, here it is, it's a book. What's Jewish law? Halakha is a book instead of this massive, messy thing. So benefits and drawbacks each. 
He gets very controversially kind of maligned for writing this, but some communities adopt it right away. In particular, he's a big hit in Yemen, where they immediately adopt the Mishnah Torah and say, this is the halakha, we love it, and they haven't changed since, even till today. Other communities are not so sure, but it is unquestionably hugely influential because it is serving a real need in the fact that most Jewish people have no idea how to actually do Judaism, and he's trying to make it accessible and simple for people. The other book he writes is called Morei Nevuchim, The Guide for the Perplexed, in which he tries to explain that actually the Torah isn't exactly what it seems to be. Lots of things are allegorical. When it says that God has hands and eyes and feet and noses, it doesn't really mean hands and eyes and feet and nose, right? And he tries to kind of give a philosophical grounding to his own combination of his learning in Muslim sources that are based on Greek philosophical sources, particularly Aristotle, and combine that with his understanding of Judaism. This might not sound very exciting, nor does it particularly sound very controversial today, I imagine, but when it came out, people lost their freaking mind, and Maimonides was immediately branded as a heretic, and one of the amazing things happened is that in the 1220s, in Montpellier, in France, a bunch of Jews who felt like Maimonides was the biggest problem in the Jewish world, foolish of them, decided that they were going to take a bunch of copies of his books, put them in a big pile in the town center, and set them on fire. First book burning in history, Jews burning other Jews' books. Not a proud moment. About 20 years later, you can imagine that day in Montpellier, the cardinal is looking out the window and goes, that's a great idea. Because 20 years later, the cardinal of Montpellier and hundreds of other cities across France and Germany decide, actually, this Talmud thing the Jews are studying, that's rubbish. We don't like that anymore. It says some naughty stuff about Jesus. So what they do is they find all the copies of the Talmud they can. By the way, we're talking handwritten manuscripts of a 63-tractate tome. They put it in carts, they bring it to the town centers, and they set them on fire. There is a whole immediate viral phenomenon of burnings of Talmuds, of other Jewish books. There becomes a tradition of public disputation in which Jewish rabbis are asked to come and have a public debate with a Christian. Usually the Christian, by the way, is someone who used to be Jewish and converted to Christianity. And the whole point is that the rabbi can go out there and lose, right? It's set up to fail, and the result is usually that a bunch of people died when they inevitably lost the debate. The entire history, I don't want to overstate this, but the entire history of Christianity in Europe is based around anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. It is inevitably the case. While things are better today than they've ever been before, and we have great relationships with our Christian neighbors, thank God, it is inevitable that this sort of anti-Semitism would have emerged because you just don't come back from being accused of killing God. right? That's not something that you can really recover from. And it really only came to fruition after the Roman Empire collapsed, after Europe became what is essentially a backwater during this period, and people started looking for enemies among those who were slightly different amongst them. It's a really big and complicated topic, which we can talk more about in depth at a different time. But just to give some context to the growing and ultimately accelerating anti-Semitism, because it goes from just people maybe thinking these Jews are a bit weird to actually taking actions against them. The Talmud burning is one piece of it. In 1190, you start to see confiscation of Jewish assets here in England. There were several prominent Jewish financiers who were the only ones who would lend money with interest, and as a result, the ones who were propping up the financial market in early medieval England. And Richard, I think it was Richard III, forgive me if I'm wrong, decided that actually he didn't want to pay back the loans that he had taken out anymore, and so instead just killed a bunch of Jews. Actually, it was when they came to coronation, uh, when they, some of the Jewish ambassadors tried to come into the coronation to bring gifts to the king, and instead they had a massacre, and that didn't go very well. Exactly 100 years later, the, uh, the Jewish anti-Jewish sentiment in England came to a fever pitch in that nearly every city in the country there were pogroms against Jews. This is the emergence of something called a blood libel. Blood libel is the accusation that Jews cook and eat Christian children, more or less, and particularly use the blood of Christian children in making matzah. And just for the record, not true, in case that's not obvious. But it became something that was incredibly... Uh, frequent in European discourse that Jews were doing this. Jews also were accused of kind of poisoning their neighbors, accused of secret rituals. This is the beginning of the kind of fear of what remained of paganism in Europe. Christianity was never successful in completely eliminating the polytheistic religions of indigenous European people. And the fear of those indigenous religions combined very much with the fear of Jews, so that Jews and witches were one and the same thing for most of the medieval period, and arguably are still today in many ways. So the 
period between kind of 1150 and let's say 1350 is just escalating badness for most Jews living in Europe. Jews living in Spain are doing all right during this time. It's kind of up and down depending on who's in charge and which Muslim army and whatever else. But there's lots of Jews who are flourishing. There's Jews in Spain during this time who are in the court, who are significant figures. There's a famous Jewish leader who lived a bit earlier named Shmuel ibn Nagrila, who is actually the commander of the Muslim armies. Right? He's the, he is the chief, basically the, the chief of staff of, of the emirate of Granada, I believe it is. Goes out to war against the Christians. He's also a poet and a warrior and a rabbi. Very different things are happening between Christian Europe and Muslim Europe and all the more so the rest of the Muslim world. So um, in Europe, in Christian Europe, including in northern Spain, right, particularly Barcelona, Catalonia, remain constantly Christian. They're never effectively taken over by Muslims. That's up here by the French border. You have also the church gradually getting to be more persecutory in how it approaches its own communities. So during this time, you also have the first crusades by the church against Christians. Right? In particular, in the area of Languedoc in the southwest of France, you have the persecution of who are now called the Cathars, a group of people who are accused of heresy, which is an idea that was made up by the church in this period, meaning you don't have the right beliefs. It all combines together. The heretics, the Jews, the witches, it's all one thing in the eyes of normative Christianity. As Europe starts to suffer social and economic decline, everyone starts looking for the enemies amongst them, and that ends up being some combination of Jews, witches, and heretics, which are often basically coterminous. In 1290, Jews are expelled from England. Not the first place, but ultimately one of the first and one of the big ones. This is after, in York, a bunch of Jews are locked in what's now called Clifford's Tower um, because they refuse to pay their neighbors something or refuse to do something else or were accused of killing a Christian child. And they're locked in the tower, and the tower is set on fire, and they're all killed. Most of them were children, by the way. In Norwich, slightly before that, one of the first real blood libels happened here in England in Norwich, in which a little boy was killed, and everyone accused the Jewish community, and they went on a pogrom and killed as many Jews as they could find. Um, there's not much about it if you visit Norwich today, by the way. There's not like you know any real information about that. But that history is really, really deeply enmeshed in England. From 1290 on, Jews are officially banned from England, and, and as a result, the Jews who lived here, who remained, which weren't very many, mostly went to France or elsewhere, to other communities. Believe it or not, it gets worse. Because in the 14th century, particularly in the first half of the 14th century, there starts to be rumors of the fact that something is happening in the eastern part of Europe, in Bulgaria, in the Balkans, some kind of disease that no one really understands, which of course over the course of several decades turns out to be what we now call the Black Death, the bubonic plague, caused by a bacteria, not by Jews. They didn't know that then. And most communities in Europe, Christian communities, believed that Jews had caused the Black Plague. Jews were often accused of being responsible for the Black Plague. Jews were particularly accused of, of poisoning the wells um, and all sorts of evil, satanic, witchy, heretical rituals that were killing their Christian neighbors. Easy target. Part of the reason was, there's lots of theories, Part of the reason was Jews didn't die as much from the Black Plague. Part of the reason Jews didn't die as much with the, from the Black Plague is we're absolutely obsessed with washing stuff, right? We wash our hands before we eat. We wash our dishes before we use them. We wash our bodies in the mikvah fairly often. Little understanding of germ theory of disease in the 14th century in Central Europe. And the Jews didn't, like, know germ theory of disease, but they happened to be a little bit better off because they had better hygiene in their communities because of halakha and because of the observance of those rituals around washing and cleanliness. Because of that, Jewish communities on average suffered less fatalities during the Black Death, and so Christian neighbors looked at the Jewish communities and went, they're not dying as much, it must be them. Anyways, that didn't end well for Jews. Pogroms, violence, expulsion all throughout this period. 1394, Jews are expelled from, from France. Um, from other parts of the Holy Roman Empire as it emerges later and later. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The Inquisition is a particular department of the Spanish government that's set up originally in the 13th century, but really doesn't find its feet until a little bit later, into the 14th century. And the Inquisition's specific job is to make sure that there's no heretics among the Christian population of Spain. 
right? And what that means is that they're there to check that everyone believes the right thing. Now, as the pressure in Spain became worse, as the Christians succeeded in gradually pushing the Muslim armies down, down, and down, and down, one of the things that they started to do is start to turn their anger against the Jews. In particular, not just the Jews, but the Jews who had converted to Christianity, as many did, who were deemed to be insufficiently Jewish. And in particular, by the time of 1492, we're jumping ahead a bit, but 1492 is the end of this process, in which two of the major kingdoms of Spain, Aragon and Castile, united together in a marriage, Ferdinand and Isabella. They married each other, united their kingdoms, finally kind of cohered a lot of the power that was available to Christian Spain, and forced the last Muslim armies to leave the continent of Spain through what's now Gibraltar in the very south. Once they did that, the immediate next step for Ferdinand and Isabella, by the way, is mostly Isabella. Ferdinand didn't really care. But Isabella was obsessed with the enemy of the Jews within Spain and the Muslims, right, both. They wanted to immediately consolidate the Christianness of the country, and that meant that all of these Jews who had converted to Christianity were immediately suspect in being insufficiently Christian. So the Inquisition's real job was to go around and check. They were kind of a secret police to make sure that the Jews who converted to Christianity and the Muslims who converted to Christianity were really deeply Christian. This took all sorts of forms. Uh, they would kind of invade people's homes. They would see on Shabbat, making sure on Shabbat, if your furnace wasn't lit, if there wasn't smoke coming out of your chimney, you were immediately taken off and killed because the assumption was that you were observing Shabbat and therefore not adequately Christian. If, in, if someone noticed you not eating pork, they would report you to the Inquisition, they would come and take you away, and they'd never be seen again. Many of the people killed by the Inquisition were killed through burning, that was their preferred method, right? often called auto-de-fe, and lots of other horrible punishments, including mass violence, neighbors telling on each other, all sorts of stuff. The climate of Spain at this time was based around fear, particularly fear of the Muslims coming back, and the Jews assisting the Muslims, right? The Jews are always accused of being a fifth column. There's the memory of the Crusades and the fact that the Jews did side with the Muslims, mostly because the Muslims didn't want to kill them and the Christians did. And so there's a sense that the Jews and the Muslims together are the enemy of New Spain. The result is that the, let's say at this time, it's probably somewhere around 800,000 Jews have a choice in 1492. They can do one of three things. They can either get killed, leave, or convert to Christianity and mean it. Uh, we don't really know the numbers because obviously no one was taking records but it seems like about a third stayed and converted to Christianity and just became Christians about a third left and about a third were killed in all sorts of violence that went on during that time of those who left, a huge amount of them went to the new colonies of Spain that had emerged during this time. This is the age of discovery. Spain was the first to really explore the world. There's several people here who speak Spanish and Portuguese who genetically should not, right? Because Spain is all the way across the ocean, but that's because of the colonization of what they called the New World, which was not new. It was already there. It, they just didn't know about it. And the result is a lot of the Jews go with uh, the Spaniards who are going to the New World. A lot of the Jews are amongst the conquistadors thinking, well, they're not going to send the Inquisition all the way to Mexico to check on us. They were wrong. <laughs> they sent the Inquisition all the way to Mexico. They sent the Inquisition all the way to Chile. They sent the Inquisition anywhere that Spain went, the Inquisition went with them. And the result was lots of Jews were even killed in the New World in the beginning of the 1500s who were <laughs> still not sufficiently Christian because they thought, ooh, and once we get to this New America place, we can go back to doing what we're supposed to be doing. There's a small group who go to the Spanish possession of the Netherlands in this time period because that's one of the colonies that you could go to and be safe, they believed. And once the Netherlands rebels against Spain in the 1600s and becomes an independent country, usually known as Holland during that time, and in its new identity re-embraces a kind of liberal, philosophical, and quite tolerant approach, the Jews who had been pretending to be Christians for three generations return to being Jews. Now you can imagine, if you're a Jew in, let's say, 1600 in Holland, but your mother and grandmother and great-grandmother were all Christians, and your great-great-grandmother had come from Spain, but no one really knew what happened, and now all of a sudden you're going back to being Jewish, it would have been a very weird experience. And you had a huge community of people return to Judaism who for three generations had been very observant Christians. 
That's today what's known as the Spanish and Portuguese Jewish community. And if you go to Amsterdam and you visit the Asnoga, which I encourage you to do, uh, we do a trip with the teenagers every year. It's amazing. It's really important to see. You realize that you have all these Jews who are suddenly trying to figure out what is Judaism, what are we supposed to do. They had to learn Hebrew. They had to learn how to do synagogues. And as a result, their Judaism is a little bit different and interesting in fascinating ways. But... It's the equivalent of people today who realize their grandparents or great-grandparents hid their Judaism during the Holocaust, and now they're coming and saying, actually, I kind of want to get back into this, but they have no idea what it is, right? So it's a very powerful thing. There's lots of stories of Jews leaving Judaism and returning to Judaism, mostly motivated by conflict, violence, and a huge degree of discrimination, as we would call it today. So 1492, the expulsion from Spain marks a kind of Rift. That's why I've broken up the timeline here, because that marks a huge rift in the identity of Jewish communities. Now, the Jewish communities living in Europe were already miserable, right? The Jewish communities who remain in Europe, they've left England, they've left France. There's some that remain in Germany, in what's called the Holy Roman Empire, in what's now Poland, in what's now Russia, etc. But they're largely very subjugated. They're subject to rules, which are stated in the Holy Roman Empire during this period that require several things of Jews. One is that they have to live in a special part of the city. Two is that they have to wear clothing that distinguishes them as Jews. And three is that they do not have civil rights, what we would today call civil rights. So if you're a Jew living in Speyer or in Warsaw or in Budapest or wherever, you can live there, but only if you live in the Jewish neighborhood, only if you wear a special armband or you wear a special hat or you make sure that you kind of distinguish yourself in some other way, dependent on the country, and you cannot vote, as though voting was a thing, right? But you can't participate in civic government, you can't work in any occupation you want, you can't socialize with your neighbors, you can't marry your neighbors, you can't go to school, you can't participate in the legal system. The result is that Jews living in those Ashkenazi countries during this time period from 1500 on are largely living a very marginalized life on the fringes of society. Tony, you had a question. You know, just back to the point of the new world, the Spanish Christopher Columbus and all that. I, I worked on boats, right? And they said that, is this true? There was Hebrew text on Christopher Columbus' boat, or is yeah. some sort of link to it? Yeah. So um, during this time, so this is a different topic slightly, but it's absolutely fascinating. Columbus, you may know, right, thought he was going to China. Uh, and he thought he was going to China because there was rumors at this time that there was a, a Christian kingdom in China, and there was a great Khan who lived in China who wanted to convert to Christianity. And the goal was that they wanted to go and find this great Khan in his Christian country in China and get him on their side so that between Europe and China, they could squeeze the Muslims in the middle. Right? The goal was actually to defeat Islam forever. Islam is the great enemy of uh, everything having to do with medieval European Christianity. The reason Christopher Columbus goes to the New World is because of Islam. There's no other reason, which is not something we say enough, right? He's going to try and find allies to defeat the Ottoman Empire, which is newly emerging and which takes over much of what used to be different caliphate territories. So because they didn't know what they would encounter and they suspected that these this legend and fantasies about these people who lived on the other side of the sea... They brought all sorts of people who spoke all sorts of languages, including uh, Jews who spoke Hebrew, because they thought, well, maybe these guys will speak Hebrew that we meet in China. Yeah. And the whole thing is a lie, right? Everything we're told about Christopher Columbus and his voyage is a lie. He wasn't trying to discover anything. It was entirely about Islam. And the whole motivation was to try and get allies so that they could flank the Ottoman Empire and destroy Islam in the middle. He just got lost. Okay. So, um, around this time, 1500, right, we start to see a change in many aspects. First of all, Islam is changing, right? So, like we talked about the Ottoman Empire, right? The Ottoman Empire emerges as a force now, and a very powerful force, which controls not only all of Turkey, but all of southern Europe. During this time, from kind of 1400 to 1500, the Ottoman Empire starts making um, invasions into Europe, right? At one point, the Ottomans get all the way to the gates of Vienna, what is today Vienna in Austria. So they get quite far, right? And that's the reason, by the way, there's Muslim communities in Europe, in Southeastern Europe, in the Balkans, in Albania, and Bosnia, etc., because of the history of the Ottoman Empire's incursion into Europe. They also succeed in incurring the other way towards what's now Russia, the Caucasus, etc., and there's a very powerful land-based Muslim empire. The Ottoman Sultan at this time invites the Jews. He goes, huh, those Christians don't want you to stay in Spain? Come here. 
And most of the Jews who leave Spain and don't go to the New World or go to Spanish possessions in Europe go to the Ottoman Empire. Right? They move back to Muslim countries, and as a result, they kind of bring with them the very educated, enlightened Spanish Judaism that they had learned into those communities. So while there were Jews living in North Africa, here in you know, Tetuan, during this whole time, they were largely kind of not very involved in Jewish life, or rather, we don't have much records of them, there wasn't a lot going on, they weren't very cosmopolitan. But in 1500, a whole bunch of Jews who were very wealthy and very ill-educated and speak Arabic and Hebrew, and by the way, my dad was a warrior, poet, rabbi who led the Muslim armies, they show up and all of a sudden they take over. So the Sephardi exiles from Spain end up inhabiting all of these Ottoman territories throughout the Middle East and ultimately kind of dominating the kind of Judaism that was practiced there. There's often conflicts between the Jews who already live there and the Sephardi Jews who show up and go, we're in charge now. And, and some of those conflicts are still present today in different ways as well, right? In Syria and Iraq, you still have different communities where there's kind of, what well, were the original Jews, and then there's the Sephardi Jews who came later. But the result is the Sephardi Jews were generally much more cosmopolitan, had much more developed sources and texts. All of this was evolving, this Maimonidean tradition of codifying Jewish law, of engaging with Parshanut, of writing commentaries. All of it was emerging. There's a lot of creativity going on in Spain. But what's really good for creativity is catastrophe. Nothing is worse for the development of history in a new direction than everything going horribly wrong. So the period that follows the expulsion from Spain sees Jews really being very creative in their approach to Judaism. In particular, the Jews who go to the Ottoman Empire bring with them all sorts of new ideas, and there's a lot of flourishing of new ways of thinking. And in like the 1540s, we'll say, we'll put ourselves right there now, 1540 to 1570, there's one particular Jewish community worthy of note in a town called Sfat, which is in the north of Israel, which the Jews were there because it's part of the Ottoman Empire. And the community in Sfat is mostly made up of, of ex-Spanish Jews, right? They have names like Cordovero, because he's from Cordoba, and Caro, and all of these Spanish names, uh, as opposed to native, native, more local names of Jewish communities who had already been living in the land of Israel since the times of the Crusades. So these Spanish exiles come to all these places in the Ottoman Empire, including Istanbul. Lots of them get involved in the court of the Sultan. There's lots of Jewish women in the harem at this point, including one who's basically the kind of queen, more or less. It's a whole complicated history. But in particular in Sfat, you have all of this energy being channeled into a really creative approach to Jewish law, Jewish thinking, Jewish mysticism. This is the time where Kabbalah really emerges as a real force in Jewish life. And as a result, this then spreads out into the Jewish communities throughout the Ottoman Empire in really influential ways. So you have lots of new ideas being created here, and ultimately this is the beginning of modernity, right? At the same time, this is going on here in Europe. So let's say, let's take the example of Prague. Around the same time this is going on here, in Prague, you have some of the Jewish community who are treated slightly better because during the Hundred Years' War, they helped defend the city from the incursion that was seen as the enemy, and as a result, the Jews are given a privileged status in Prague. So the rabbi, who's one of the leading rabbis in Prague during this time, he kind of has friends with the emperor, and of course, there's the famous story about the golem, which didn't happen, but if it did, it would have happened during that time. And by the way, the leading rabbi of that story and of that time, a guy called the Maharal of Prague, one of his students is best friends with the guy who discovered Pluto, Kepler. Right? Johannes Kepler. And they're writing letters to Tycho Brahe, I think that's his name, one of the astronomers who's doing some of the early observations. And by the way, a lot of these Jews who are living in Italy also know Galileo, and they're kind of engaged in these early discussions around what we today would call science. The emergence of the Renaissance, the emergence of science, the emergence a little bit later of the Enlightenment, is largely a result of all of these very well-educated, very clever Jews leaving Spain and bringing all these new ideas to the communities in which they lived in really interesting ways. Isaac Newton, in addition to discovering gravity by having an apple fall on his head, way to go, also spent most of his time studying Hebrew and reading Kabbalistic manuscripts and calculating Bible codes in his attic. So history is a lot more complicated than you might think. And the role that the expulsion of Spain plays not just in Jewish history, but in Western European history, and indeed Middle Eastern history, is huge in many, many ways that we don't fully appreciate. So this period is really a, a reconsolidation of many things going on. 
Jewish communities in Europe continue to be marginalized, right? The violence is still there, although the violence has largely died down. There's fewer pogroms, there's less kind of blood libels. It still happens here and there, but largely the, the problem of the Jews, which is talked about, right, the Jewish problem, has been solved by marginalizing the Jewish community and making them live at the edges of society. And that succeeds to kind of holding things at bay for a while. But there are some places where that's not the case, and Jews are really contributing to what's going on, including in what we start to see as the cosmopolitan centers of Jewish life. This idea and the influence of this starts to kind of co-align with other things going on. So in the 1660s, for instance, there's something going on in England. What's happening in England in the 1660s? Civil War. Civil War, right? Everyone knows that, right? Yeah? Oliver Cromwell, Roundheads, Cavaliers, etc. Yeah? First people to ever cut off their king's head. Woo! Um, yeah, never, okay, different thing. Okay, 1660s. Part of the motivation of the, uh, of the Cromwell camp, the Puritans, the Protestants who were fighting against the king and ultimately responsible for his demise and everything else, whatever, part of their motivation was a really religious sense that the end of the world was coming. Part of the reason they believed the end of the world was coming was because they thought it was going to happen in 1666. They just liked that number, I suppose, so they connected it to the book of Revelation, which is wrong, that's not what it means. Anyway, Part of the reason that they did that is because they were understanding that all these things were changing. The Ottoman Empire was starting to crumble a little bit. There was all these new discoveries across the world, all these new colonies. The Jews were moving around, and lots of them were moving back to the land of Israel. And in this Christian messianic expectation, that was seen as a sign of the end of the world coming. So the Jews petition from the Netherlands the Spanish and Portuguese community, to say to Oliver Cromwell, hey, now that you're in charge, how do you feel about Jews coming back to England? Because, you know, there's this whole thing about how the world's going to end and you need the Jews to come back and whatever. Anyways, he buys it. And the Jews come back to England. It's a little bit more complicated than that. We're, you know, very short on time. I apologize to everyone involved and their memory. But ultimately, the Jews do come back to England in the 1660s. And the first synagogue is built in 1700 that's still there today. It's called Bevis Marks in the city of London. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty cool. It's now surrounded by skyscrapers, but it's still there. So... During this period, you also have the, the reintegration of Jewish communities into historical places that they were expelled from before. Not everywhere, but England is one of the few examples of where that's successful. You also have the beginning of the Enlightenment, obviously the Protestant Revolution and the Hundred Years' War and the violence in Christian Europe between Catholics and Protestants is all happening in the background of this to some degree, and Jews, as usual, get caught in the crossfire. But once the Protestant countries start to form into Protestant countries, they tend to be slightly more permissive of Jewish populations and more tolerant, purely because their objection was that they were untolerated by the Catholic majority, and so they're kind of a little bit more tolerant on average, not everywhere, but on average, particularly places like the Netherlands, England, some other examples, some of the states that ultimately become Germany, etc. Anyway, the development during this period of the Jewish community um, is, is more or less in keeping with what's going on in the broader communities and the places they live. Nothing particularly crazy happens, nothing particularly exciting happens. Things are kind of plodding along. The big thing that happened in terms of publications is that during this time in Sfat, there was another attempt, a second attempt, to write a code of Jewish law. This one is written by a guy named Yosef Karo, and the book is called the Shulchan Aruch, which means the set table. And he tries to do what Maimonides did uh, 400 years earlier, uh, 500 years earlier, but to do it better. And he doesn't, by the way. He does it worse, I think. But he tries again to kind of formulate all of halakha into one book. For a variety of reasons, his is very successful. People don't burn it. And so they go, this is great. We'll do this. And from then until now, the Shulchan Aruch has largely been seen as the authoritative code of Jewish law. 90% of Jews today... Uh, Jewish communities, if there's a question about what Jewish law is, what is the halakha, the first place to go is the Shulchan Aruch, right? That remains the case. If I am looking and understanding any question of halakha, I have to be able to engage with the Shulchan Aruch. I don't think it should be as authoritative as it is, that's a different lecture, but there's no doubt that it did become extremely influential and authoritative. The other thing that happened is a lot of new ideas about Kabbalah, mysticism, and messianic expectation entered the Jewish community. During the 1660s, in addition to what was going on in England, the other really crazy thing that happened for the Jewish community is that there was a guy named Shabtai Svi. Anyone heard of Shabtai Svi before? Yes. So Shabtai Svi is not the first, nor the last, 
but he is probably the most influential person who claimed to be the Messiah. Now, you might remember from previous lecture that what we mean when we say the Messiah is that someone has to be a direct lineal descendant of King David and restore Jewish sovereignty to the land of Israel. Those are the two criteria. Shabtai Svi is neither, which is not a good start. But he's very charismatic, and he's got a friend named Nathan of Gaza who is very good at, like, hyping him up. And because all of Europe is really obsessed with the fact that the end of the world is coming and there's all this apocalyptic thinking and science is emerging and the church is breaking down all these boundaries and fighting against the new enlightenment thinkers and lots is changing all over the place, people are looking for kind of more extreme religious ideas. When things start to collapse, people tend to gravitate toward more extreme religious ideas. I'll leave you to conclude what that says about our own time and its economic security. But the result is, Shabtai Svi, pretty normal, non-interesting guy from the town of Izmir in Turkey, and then the Ottoman Empire, succeeds in convincing, according to some scholars, two-thirds of the Jewish world, worldwide, that he is the Messiah. Right? Today, that would be 10 million people. I don't know how accurate that is, but huge amounts of people buy into this viral idea that Shabtai Svi is the Messiah. Now, part of the reason he's so successful is that Jews found a new technology during this time that they're absolutely obsessed with. Anyone know what it is? Printing, right? We love books, as you might know. And when Gutenberg figured out how to do the printing press, the second person ever to use it was a Jewish friend of his who went, this is a great idea. And the first books to really be mass-published were all Hebrew books. Within 10 years of Gutenberg's invention, there were hundreds of Hebrew books being published en masse. Prayer books, Chumashim, Talmud copies. Jews got crazy for the printing press because we already were crazy about books. And the amount of time and money it saves to use the printing press was huge. It also means you can get ideas out much faster and to many more people in a way that would have been inconceivable in the generations before. So the printing press, combined with the messianic expectations of the time, combined with all the new ideas that had re-energized Jewish thinking since the time of the expulsion of Spain, meant that this, the end of the 17th century was an absolute disaster. Shabtai Svi, by the way, not the Messiah. Uh, in order to demonstrate that he was going to restore sovereignty to the land of Israel, what he had to do was go to the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, who currently had sovereignty over the land of Israel, because the land of Israel was in the Ottoman Empire, and ask him to make Shabtai Svi the king of Israel. That was the, that's what he had to do. He goes to meet the Sultan. He says, hi, I'm Shabtai Svi. Make me the king of Israel. The Sultan says, great, we can kill you, or you can be a Muslim. And Shabtai Svi converts to Islam, there and then, on the spot, and as a result, all of those millions, and it probably was millions of people who follow him, become completely disillusioned. Some people believe he's still the Messiah, he's just pretending to be Muslim, and we, you know, it's all just an act. Some people believe that actually he's, he's dead and he's going to come back and he was never really there in the first place. Some people just feel really betrayed. Some people start to get really violent about it. It causes a huge rift, right? I don't want to make too many analogies to contemporary life, but the QAnon phenomenon has a lot in common in many ways with this whole kind of conspiratorial thinking. Maybe there's some meaning to it. Maybe it's all on purpose. Maybe there's a secret plan going on in the background. People are following the messages of some random person who's posting on the internet and thinking that they, in fact, have secrets of the universe to dispense to them about the American political system. They don't. Neither did Shabtai Svi. But in times in which people feel particularly insecure, they gravitate toward these sort of people and this sort of thinking. So nothing new under the sun indeed. Shabtai Svi fails, it blows up completely. The result is that Jews across the world have a huge kind of conflict. And for the next hundred years, at least, Jewish communities spend a lot of time just trying to tamp everything down. In Europe, rabbis make the rule that no one can study Kabbalah anymore, especially not the young people, because they were all the ones who got behind Shabtai Svi. And they start to kind of limit what sort of ideas can be taught in schools. They also start to change the education system, and they go on a little bit of a heresy hunt themselves. So some rabbis start accusing other rabbis of being Sabbateans secretly and still believing in Shabtai Svi. Lots of rabbis are removed from posts or killed or ultimately kind of marginalized because they're accused of still supporting Shabtai Svi. Lots of Jews kind of go underground, and some of the rituals that we still do today are a result of those Shabtai Svi followers who kind of went underground and hid it. Lots of wild and amazing things happen during this time, and it continues for a while. One of the things that happens is in Europe, about 50 to 100 years later, in the 1720s, 1750s, you see the emergence of a whole new approach to Judaism, which we now call Hasidut, 
right, based on piety, which is a way of re-energizing a lot of Jewish spirituality, but is ultimately also a way of sublimating the Shabtai Svi feeling into a new movement that's acceptable. It's not acceptable to everyone. And from this time on, in Europe, the Ashkenazi community is divided very, very sharply between the Hasid, Hasidim and the Hasidut and the community that it supports versus those who oppose it, who call themselves a Mitnagdim, or the opposers, not a very creative name. So the, the, the result and the aftermath continue to be felt, shockwave after shockwave, through Jewish communities for a long time. We have so much more to cover, and we're running out of time. So we're going to try and go even faster, which I apologize for. But the closer we get to our own time, the more I hope we know already in some way. So late 1700s, lots of stuff happening. Right, We're jumping now to, let's say, 1789. What's happening in 1789? French Revolution. Thank you, Daniel. Right, so French Revolution. Something important to know about the French Revolution, not only do they think they're the first ones to cut off their king's head when we did it first, England, but also the French Revolution is the first time that any Jewish community in Europe ever is given civil rights. That's what's significant to us in many ways. In 1791, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is promoted and endorsed by the most extreme components of the French Revolution, right, the, the Jacobins, and particularly Robespierre, great friend of the Jews, Robespierre, also a great friend of the guillotine, but a great friend of the Jews, decides that actually all people deserve civil rights, including Jews, specifically mentioning Jews and bringing Jewish people into the fold. This is an incredible change to the entire history of Jewish community in Europe for at least the last 800 years and whatever existed before that. The result is that from 1789 on, in rolling waves, as the French Revolution spreads across mainland Europe, as Napoleon conquers more places, as the ideas of the French Revolution infect and engage with all the other ideas that are going on in the time, you have Jews gradually, in Europe, being given civil rights. What this means is for the first time they can live anywhere they want, they can do any profession they want, they can marry anyone they want, and if they don't want to be subject to Jewish law, they don't have to be. They can go and deal with the regular courts, the French courts. They can be regular old French people, regular old German people, and they don't have to be Jewish at all, really. It doesn't have to be part of who they are anymore. And the result is you have the first real assimilation in Europe. The only reason it only happens now is because it couldn't have happened before. Because before that, you, didn't really, you couldn't leave the Jewish community because you wouldn't be accepted in the regular community. Maybe you could become a pirate, but you couldn't go and live next door with your neighbors and marry them and work at their places of work and do the things that they did. Only after this is it possible. The result is that you have a radical shift between two types of Jewish communities from 1789 until, let's say, 1889, roughly 100 years, you have Judaism more or less split in two in Europe. One part says, okay, now that we can be regular, everyday French people, German people, let's just forget the whole Judaism thing and just assimilate into society, and we'll just be French people of the Jewish persuasion, or German people who have the Jewish religion. This ultimately becomes the reform movement in a slightly different way, mostly in the 1840s in Germany. And the reform movement's whole goal is to create a Jewish community which is entirely assimilated. That means synagogue is now on Sunday because church is Sunday. That means nobody wears kippot or, or tzitzit in synagogue because Christians don't do that. That means the synagogue is done in German, not in Hebrew, because everyone else prays in German. That means that you have to eat the food everyone else eats, so kashrut goes out the window, shabbat goes out the window, etc., so the preservation of Jewish identity is purely a kind of national origin rather than any kind of observance of life. The counter to that is there's another group of people throughout Germany and Hungary and Central Europe who go, that's awful, we don't like that, so what we're going to do is never change anything ever again. And they literally say, there's a famous rabbi named Hatam Sofer who says that anything new is now prohibited by the Torah. And people take this very seriously. So the other side of it is saying that whatever is happening right now in 1841, whatever we're doing today, that's it. That's what we're going to do forever. We're never going to add anything. We're never going to take anything away. We're never going to change. This is why, if you go into Stamford Hill, you will see people dressed like it's 1841 in Hungary, because they literally have not changed. Right? The entire basis of the Haredi movement is to say, whatever is new is prohibited by the Torah, which is not true, by the way. Both of these are reactions to modernity, reactions to civil rights being offered to Jews. Both of them are extremes. And ultimately, over time, you start to see a middle way kind of emerge in which some people go, I don't know, maybe we can be Jews and Germans. And that ultimately becomes what we call Masorti Judaism today, although it's a lot more complicated than that. The assimilation, whether it's 
Jews becoming part of the societies they live in, or Jews going to the extremes of making themselves further marginalized in the societies they live in, ultimately spreads and continues throughout the 19th century. And what's also happening throughout the 19th century is that you have a reemergence of European anxiety about otherness, about foreigners, about solidarity, about cohesion in the society. There's lots of reasons why. It's very complicated, I suppose, as to why. But industrialization and enlightenment scientific thinking lead people to start looking at their society more or less the same way they did back here. Right? Things tend to happen in patterns. And if you have a kind of curve here that then gradually dips a little bit through here, it comes right back in the same way down to this end. And the result is you have a persecutory approach to the population that emerges during this time period, motivated largely by scientific racism, which is the importation of scientific ideas into sociology that don't belong there, and also kind of the emergence of nationality and nationalism, which of course leads ultimately to a lot of violence against Jews in the 20th century, most notably the Holocaust. This is not a class on the Holocaust. We could spend a lot of classes on the Holocaust, and we probably should. But one thing that's worth saying, right, is that in 1939 in Europe, there's somewhere around, well, worldwide, there's somewhere around 13 million Jews, right? In 1945, there's 7 million Jews, maybe less. So the, the scale of the Holocaust is not just, oh yeah, six million people were killed, which is an absurd number, right? And we become so casual about how we say it. But the fact that it's also almost half of the worldwide population of Judaism is one of the things that is particularly upsetting about looking at the Holocaust, is the effectiveness of it. There's lots of factors behind the Holocaust and the post-Holocaust settlement in Europe and how that relates to Jewish communities today. More or less, the experience of Jewish communities today is that Jewish communities after the war have just picked up on where they were before the war, in which some people are going one way, some people are going another way, and everyone's just hoping for the best. It didn't work last time, probably won't work this time. That's a very depressing note to end on. Instead, I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that we didn't mention, which is, I think, a more positive note to end on, although it depends on the day. During the emergence of nationalist thinking in this time period, lots of the Jews in the Ottoman Empire and in Europe and elsewhere start to think, you know what, maybe it's time. All these new ideas about everyone returning to the land of Israel, the thinking about Shabtai Svi and how he suggested that we should regain sovereignty, it ultimately percolates into lots of intellectual discussions in the 19th century to the extent that nationalism, which is very common in Europe among English and French and German and other nations, starts to emerge within the Jewish nation as well, given the particular label of Zionism, right, which is Jewish nationalism, the desire for Jews to return to the land of Israel and establish a sovereign state there. It emerges gradually and over time, and ultimately across the 19th century you have a growing movement and push of people who say, you know what, the only way that Judaism is going to survive is if we go into our own country. Now that we have civil rights, we're baffled by the choices left to us, but one choice we do have is that we can leave if we want to, which you could not do before. Let's go. Let's go back finally. We've got the resources, the knowledge, the skills to go back to the land of Israel. And the emergence of Zionism as a movement is largely a way of answering the challenge of Jewish life in Europe post-French Revolution, post-civil rights. The nationalism of Zionism has many manifestations during this time period. There's lots of different nuances to it. You only start to see mass migrations of people in the late 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, 1900. You see large amounts of people moving to the Ottoman Empire, to what's the land of Israel, which is part of the Ottoman Empire. Most of them are, are poor. Most of them are living in Ashkenazi countries, although not all of them. And they start to build new societies, start to speak Hebrew again, which has not been done for a very long time as a day-to-day -day spoken language. And ultimately, once the Ottoman Empire crumbles in the First World War, the Jewish community living in the land of Israel, who hopes to restore sovereignty, sees an opportunity to do so because the Ottoman Empire has fallen apart. Everything's being divided up. That little parcel of land gets given to the British, as you may know, becomes the British Mandate of Palestine, and the Zionist movement agitates as a result during those 28 years that the British Mandate of Palestine exists for Britain to leave and allow the Jewish nationalist Zionist movement to restore sovereignty to the land of Israel. It's not that simple. And of course, the result is in 1947, a three-way civil war between the British occupying forces, the Arab forces, which live in the land of Israel, supported by the Arab nations that live around the land of Israel, and the community of Jews who live in the land of Israel called the Yishuv. 
the outcome of that war is that the Jewish community is surprisingly to everyone successful, and the modern state of Israel is created in May 1948. Since then, obviously, the state of Israel has had its own distinct history, which, again, this is not a lecture on. But in many ways, it's an unprecedented break with all the rest of the history we've learned. If you go back, and this is the last thing we'll end on, if you go back to where we started, talking about where we start, 500, no, 1500 BCE, right? You have eight, we're pointing down there as the timeline continues. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the Exodus, the land of Israel, David, Solomon, all of the many kingdoms that existed in the empires that conquered and the Jewish sovereignty that was trying to be restored, the Hasmoneans and the Romans and the conflict of the Romans, and then ultimately dispersion of Jewish people throughout Europe and throughout then later Muslim countries and later than that Christian countries and the conflict of Jews caught up in Christian and Muslim conflicts with each other and countries... The only thread throughout all of it, and it is a lot, right, it is a real lot of history, is that the community of Jews which exists miraculously, which is tiny the entire time, never have there been more Jews than there are today, and there's about 15 million, that's the most Jews there have ever been in the world, right, never have there been more, and always throughout that time has there been a preservation of the desire to go back to the land of Israel, to restore Jewish sovereignty. The desire starts the day after the kingdom of Israel falls, right, when Solomon dies, and the desire never really goes away. So what's really amazing is that although a lot of time passed and a lot of ups and downs and a lot of issues happened in the middle, eventually it does happen. Whether it will last, that's an open question. I think that's largely up to Israelis today. But there's something quite spectacular about the fact that there is an identity of a small group of people from a pretty middling Mediterranean tribe who existed a very long time ago, who are still around, still more or less doing the same thing, still more or less telling the same stories, and ultimately able to look back on what is more or less 3,000 years of history of continuity and acknowledge that there's good and bad to it, but ultimately it's all one pretty incredible story. So I think that's what's really special about learning Jewish history. It's not the details so much as the overview and the appreciation for how unlikely it is that we'd even be here today sitting here in this room in 2023 in Britain talking about the incredible history of Jewish people.